Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Revelation 10. Today we're going to talk about an angel and the little scroll and the two witnesses. An angel and the little scroll and two witnesses. You know, sometimes movies begin and when the first thing hits the screen, you drop right into the hottest action of the movie. I'm thinking of uh, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. You know, the, the movie starts, he's hanging from two fingers, uh, thousands of feet above, nothing below him, you know, and all of a sudden he pulls up and grabs hold and he's on the top of the mountain all of a sudden, you know, and you don't really know what's going on and all of a sudden you're hanging on the side of a mountain. You're, you're all kind of rent up inside. You don't know who the actors are. You obviously think he must be a superhero, but then a few minutes into the movie, the movie kind of brings you down they sit around and and all of a sudden you're introduced to the characters and you kind of get a feel for who's what and how this is going to go and maybe a little bit of the storyline that's called an interlude you see it takes you from the main action of the story and it brings you into a moment of reprieve where you get a little more insight into the story and what's going on so you can kind of understand from there well today is an interlude No, I'm not going to begin by hanging off of a mountain or anything of that nature for you. But we will walk into the interlude of the text today because what we're going to learn today is that in this moment of brevity and reprieve before the seventh trumpet, just like the seventh seal, we're going to learn important details regarding those who are alive in the last days. And we're going to clarify the role of God's people. We're going to offer perspective about that role. And finally, encouragement to live and endure faithfully. And so, Christian, are you ready to learn your role for the events of the end of the age? To know how it will be then in order to prepare by living now. And I am firmly convinced this is the point of revelation that we learn God's sovereign plan for the day of, not so we can know what's coming and position ourselves then, but rather so we can posture our heart now to walk in light of his truth every day with him. I want you to see this today as you walk away. Jesus stands sovereign over all creation to judge. But God guards his people for a faithful witness to all nations. God is the one who's guarding his people for a faithful witness to all nations. I'm not going to be able to read all the text this morning simply for the sake of time. I'll read some towards the end. But let's go to chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 1. Because what I want to show you today in these passages are four realities of final judgment. Four realities of final judgment that prepare us as Christians to remain faithful in the last days and to reveal why all people should trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we come to chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus is now, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus is now back on earth, or excuse me, John is now back on earth. He's been up in the heavenlies. We've seen part of the story transpire there. He's been brought back down now to earth, and this next vision occurs there. 
And while he's looking up, an angel comes down from earth. Verse 1, a mighty angel comes down from heaven to the earth. And the appearance of this angel reminds us of God's promise and mighty power. Listen to the description. Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. What are we reminded of here? Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head? Well, we know that the cloud is the way that God led the people out of Egypt, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So already in the imagery of the mighty angel that's come down, we're seeing the promise of God and the way God has acted in behalf of his saints through the ages, and we're reminded of this. A rainbow is over his head. Now, this symbol in and of itself is one that represents divine appearance or something that is divine about the one. So this is a divine messenger. But the rainbow itself is given to Noah at the end of the flood. So when Noah steps off the ark, God gives a rainbow as what? A covenant promise that says he'll never destroy the earth or creation again by the flood. So we're seeing the power of God that's been at work that we've known of now reminding us of how he plans to work in this time. The angel is holding what is described as a little scroll. And so there's a message that's contained here, but it's probably not a secondary message as much as a sub-message. So it's, a, it's somewhat maybe of a, a footnote in the main scroll that's been opened, or the message of this scroll in some way gives greater insight and detail into the large scroll that was opened a few chapters ago. And it tells us that the angel takes this posture of authority. One foot is set on the land, another foot is set on the sea. And when he speaks, his voice is like a lion's roar. When he calls out, it tells us that seven thunders roar. Seven thunders sound off. And immediately, as John has done throughout, he begins to record what it is that he heard from the seven thunders. But the angel says to him, seal it up. We will not record and write in the Revelation what the seven thunders have said. This is a message we will learn that is of God's timing and remains a mystery to us, though God knows. And then the angel raises his hand, which is a a, a movement of authority to denote that authority. And he swears that there will be no more delay when the seventh trumpet sounds, God's mystery would be fulfilled. Last week we saw that there was an accelerating advancement through the plagues as they got worse and worse, moving towards the final judgment when God would bring all things to an end. And here we see in this opening scene the swearing of an oath, which is the only swearing of an oath in Revelation. And it tells us that this is God's promise, that he will no longer delay but he will bring it to the end. You know, I can't think of one image that could hold more of God's promise and power to reveal more of his plan than this angel who comes down from heaven. It's a representative of Jesus who's holding the scroll, and that scroll is going to reveal how God's plan will be to defeat evil, to rescue his people, to transform his creation. Here we have the divine eternal mystery of God 
And, and it's going to be unveiled in front of us in the details and how it's going to be carried out and what all that this means for John, but also the rest of the people that are still on the earth during this time. John hears the thunder's roar and he is instructed not to record this, but only that it will be a promise of no more delay and God's mystery will be revealed You see, this mystery is one of which is not something that is unknown. It's just not yet fully revealed. And friends, as we draw in on this first reality, we need to understand God's use of mystery in the text. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the mystery of God are not for us, but the things that he has given to us are for us. And he's beginning to introduce, even in his law from the beginning, that there are aspects of his divine wisdom that he knows but are not for us yet. They will be known fully in his divine and sovereign time. But until that time, we're not missing something because of what remains a mystery to us. Rather, God has given us all that we need to know to live today for that day. And we're seeing that at the beginning of this interlude. His wisdom concealed is his timing during which his promise proves sufficient for us. And while God's patience comes to an end and the time for final judgment is going to fall, what we will find is that his promise remains sufficient. God has revealed that he will judge. And through that judgment, he will save those who trust in him. But you know, one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith is simply this, trusting God's promises. We love them when we receive them because of the message that they give to us. But when they are all that we have to hold to, We don't see things as they really are. We don't see all that we want to see or think we need to know or to see. The question for us becomes, will we trust God's promise even when things remain a mystery to us? But friends, the fact is we are not without. We have his promise. And as I've said countless times in this church, God's promises are more sure, certain, and real than you and I sitting in the room right now. That's what we have to learn. That in our desire to be sovereign over our own life, we want God to give us all the information and then we'll figure it out. But God gives us his promises because he's not threatened by how things are going to turn out like we are. He rather desires a relationship that draws us close where we trust him. And we grow deeper in that trust with him. And that's what promises do. They sweeten everything to learn who he is. You see, God is even gracious in his mystery. That what we do not know, we do not need to know. But we can trust his promise. That we have all we need to know to trust and to rest in him. And that's what he begins to introduce in this interlude for us. And the first reality of final judgment that I want you to understand this morning is this, that God's promise is sufficient. 
His promise is sufficient to source our faith for obedience, even as we await the timing of his mystery. As we await the timing of his mystery. Christian, have you learned to rest in God's promise? So you do not question his mystery, but rather you trust to obey his sovereign plan and what he has revealed to you. This is fundamental. This is elementary, if you will. This is first order for us as believers, taking the promises of God and learning to build our life on those, knowing that he who's made the promise is the one who is certain to fulfill them. As I've mentioned several times, it's so easy in a study of Revelation to get distracted by other things. And the best way for us to stay focused is to dial in on exactly what we are being told and use that as the centering understanding of all that we don't yet fully understand. Because what we will learn in that is that God has given us the whole truth in the center of what he has revealed to us. It's just the details that he's bringing about in that. Well, as we move to verse 8, the voice speaks again to John. John is told to take the scroll and to eat it. This is a rather familiar practice with prophets. We see this as the whole book of Revelation really resembles in a great way the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2 ate a scroll so that he could uh, uh, ingest all of the message and communicate it faithfully and effectively. The scroll, the angel tells him, will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And when John eats it, he finds that it is as the angel has said. Then he is told that he must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. For the scroll was the message for John to prophesy of God's plan, that, that God would judge evil, that God would redeem and rescue his people, and that he would transform his creation. And this was a plan, as we've seen, that was soon to come to completion. And so what we see here in verses 8 through 11 is John, or God is once again commissioning John with the message that he's communicating to his people. John is a kind of a unique individual in the writing of Revelation because as a prophet, he takes the tradition of the New Testament prophets and the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. So the tradition of the Old Testament prophets was, thus saith the Lord. They were the mouthpiece of God and what they said, the people received as the very word of God themselves. But prophets in the New Testament didn't operate as prophets in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they had the law of God, and they were as apostles writing what we understand to be the canon of Holy Scripture now. Theirs was not a foretelling, but a forthtelling. In other words, what God had already said, they were preaching, they were declaring, they were making that known and explaining in that way. So the prophets of the New Testament were saying, not thus saith the Lord in its origin, but God has said, 
And so you see where, where Paul and Peter and John, as they preach messages throughout the Scripture, they're drawing out of the Word of God from the Old Testament, and they're explaining it and applying it and teaching us how we walk by faith and obedience to God. When we come to John, though, in Revelation, he takes aspects of both. He is actually revealing things that have not yet been revealed, that have been given to him to show us and to encourage us in what shall be. And this message, friends, is one of bittersweet, bittersweet. God's people, this is important. Here's the bittersweet. Will not be delivered from martyrdom and death but rather will be delivered through martyrdom and death to the glorious resurrection of God. Hard truths, important truths, bitter, sweet. You see, the prospect of no further delay in the fulfillment of God's eternal purposes, that's the sweet spot. That it will involve a bitter prelude of which some many will suffer persecution, that's hard to swallow. But friends, God is pointing our eyes and our hearts, our whole lives to him. He is sovereign and he will complete his plan soon. But his people will endure suffering to finalize his purposes in the world. The second reality of final judgment that I want you to see today is this. God is sovereign both in his judgment of sin and to demonstrate his resurrection power through the endurance of his people. You see, we make a grave mistake, Christians, when we seek to project what God may do so that we can choose an alternate course in avoidance now. But what the, the scroll has revealed to us and what John is saying to us, that it is through martyrdom, it is through persecution and through suffering that God will save and redeem his people to the glorious resurrection. Christ, Hebrews tells us, learned obedience through what he suffered. And he is not only our master, he is also a model for us for how God's perfection will be brought about in our life. But friends, hear me. You don't need to fear persecution and suffering. God doesn't reveal these things to us to get us all wrenched up inside and angsty about what's coming and to live in fear. We know it's God's plan because God is honest and he is forthright and he reveals the truth to us. But any amount of suffering, any amount of persecution never threatens his power. And that is the power that fills us for the living that he has commanded of us. We see this in the text in the book of Acts chapter 5. The apostles are taking before the ruling religious leaders and they are persecuted there for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And once they are beaten, they walk away and it tells us that they sense that they are privileged because they have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. They consider it a glory, an honor 
for this purpose. Paul exhorts the the church at Philippi. He says this in chapter 1, verse 29. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Later, he goes on in chapter 3 of that uh, same letter to say that his desire is for the, the power of God's resurrection through Jesus Christ in him and to share in his sufferings so that some way, somehow, I don't know how it's going to happen, he says. This is the free lane interpretation. I too will be resurrected as Christ was. And of course, he counsels the young Timothy. Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, this is not a popular message. This is not the, the message that you hear so often from the pulpits of the Christian churches in the West and in America. But what John is revealing to us is that Christians live prepared by faith to endure any persecution and suffering from following Jesus because God has promised that his power through his promise will be sufficient for all our needs. And so Christian, I ask you, is your faith being strengthened to trust God, even to endure persecution. You say, wow, pastor, this seems like a downer, man. What, what's going on here, you know? Let me tell you something. If, if you were to go out today and pick up a baseball bat and a glove and a, a ball and head over to the field, and, and you, you haven't picked up any of those things in decades now, maybe never before, you're not going to be very good. I don't care what you think about yourself. Why? Because you haven't practiced. You haven't learned what it means to perfect, yea, even to master a skill, to understand the, the purpose of practice in these things. You see, God is gracious to give his promise to us for the power, but he is also gracious to reveal these truths to us because you and I need to be developing a doctrine and a theology of the purpose of God's divine plan in our life for suffering as much as we do for blessing. Otherwise, it'll be game time and you'll wonder what a glove is all about. You'll think you know how to use the bat and you'll never even see the pitch coming. These things are important to us, friends, to prepare us for what God is revealing to us. Look at verse, or chapter 11, verse 1. We see here two witnesses. But first, John is given a rod to measure the temple of God, and he's to measure the altar and those who worship there. This rod was like a stiff reed. Some say it was 12, 15, even 20 feet high, probably six, eight inches wide, and it was stiff, so it could be used like a, a long measuring yardstick, if you will, of greater proportion. It was a common measurement tool in that day. And he's directed to measure the inner court where the altar is and those who are worshiping there. So there is a, a people that are identified. We've already seen those who live under the altar in heaven. We're back on earth now, and there is a reference, those, to those who worship at the altar in the inner court. 
And that's what he is to measure. But he is directed not to measure the outer court because that will be given over to the nations who will trample the holy city for 42 months. You see, Jesus is the one who is directing John here. And his purpose is not to calculate the size, but to define the parameters. In other words, the parameters that will signify ownership. If you want to sell your land or sell your lot, the corners of that lot must be established so it's known exactly the size and the shape and what are the parameters of what you're actually giving to sell. And when you do that or you're the purchaser, you take under contract, that's laid out. It's platted on a map because as you give your money to purchase this piece of land, the parameters of it are defined. You know what you own. That's what God is doing here. God is defining the parameters of those who are his because he's gonna protect them in the day that is coming. Now, there is debate over who it is in the inner court. Is this the nation of Israel or is this all of God's people? We've already seen this a few chapters ago where we talked about the 144,000 and then the great multitude. And I showed a little bit of my hand then and I told you I think that's two references to the same group of people. Well, here, to stay consistent with that, I'm going to say this. I believe that this represents the latter, all of God's people that remain on earth and not an actual building. Because those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit become the temple of the living God is what the New Testament teaches. And my argument is, if the New Testament is teaches is teaching throughout it that we are becoming the temple of the living God. We've already seen that those who are in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's a, another way that God represents or, or identifies his people in Revelation. I believe that the imagery here continues best in that way. And so Jesus commands John to measure the inner court that he might establish all the people left on earth who are gods that they will be placed under a special protection during his judgment to signify that these are God's people. God knows who you are and he knows where you're located. Let me tell you why that's important. Because when it all breaks loose, you're going to wonder if God knows. You're going to wonder if God sees and if he cares. You already wonder that when it breaks loose. And what's broken loose so far as far as we know, is not yet the ultimate breaking loose. And even in the little, we learn to ask questions. God, do you see what I'm going through right now? Do you see how heavy the weight, how hard the burden? And God says, yes, I see. Why? Will you know? Will you care? Yes, why? Because I've measured you off. You are mine. I know where you are. You're under my protection. This is what God is saying to his people. The reality that God knows his church, friends, for us as Christians is comforting. It's comforting because he says that the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's the outer court. 
This reference to trampling refers to how the wicked will rule the world. And yes, it means that there will be persecution and even to a great degree. The outer court is the church in the world that while Christians are not subject to judgment, they will suffer persecution during this time. Understanding that the temple and the outer court represent the church, that during the difficult period lying immediately ahead, the people of God will be kept safe, even though they'll suffer at the hands of the unbelieving world. Bittersweet, bittersweet. There is a limit that is placed on pagan hostility that God will allow Christians to suffer. But as we've seen before, it will be limited in its scope and even in its longevity. So God here is acting to preserve his people by identifying them for his divine protection. And friends, this is great comfort for us as Christians as we hear the words of God and trust in his promise to us. Verse three, we see two witnesses that appear, verses three through six. And these two witnesses are granted authority from Jesus to prophesy for 1,260 days. And these witnesses that are witnessing on the earth are clothed in sackcloth. Now, I draw a comparison here to these witnesses who I believe are all God's people left on the earth during these days. If you remember who it is that's in heaven under the altar offering prayers for the holiness of God to come and to be revealed on earth, they were dressed in what? White robes, white robes. Why? Because they've passed on, they're in heaven, they're secure there. This group is still on earth. Their witness is not finished upon the earth. They're wearing sackcloth because sackcloth is a representation of mourning. It is a representation of, uh, of warning. So mourning and warning, in case you misunderstood those two words. And it is a, a, an attire for the, that, that accompanies their witness in this day. If you look at verse four, it tells us that they are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. And it tells us that while they witness, verse five, fire from their mouth consumes any of their foes that oppose them to protect them so that they can fulfill their witness. In other words, there won't be anything in this period that hinders, thwarts, or deters their witness. They will move forth completely unabated in their witness. Those who come against them will be destroyed by fire from their mouth. That's how effective and efficient these witnesses will be. It's acute. It's exact. It is without threat in every way. They will be effective in their witness. Their power, verse six, will resemble that of the prophet Elijah and the great one Moses. Look at verse six. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's Elijah. That's Elijah. And they have given, been given the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Moses before Pharaoh in Egypt. You see, I believe that these two witnesses are not individuals, but are symbols of the witnessing church in the last days before the end age. You say, well, why two though? What does the two represent? 
Well, I believe the two represents a valid testimony that Scripture requires in order for a testimony to be valid. So in other words, the two is a reference to the fact that there are two witnesses, in other words, in a court of law, in the divine court of the heavenlies, their testimony is established. If it's just one person, that testimony may be taken and recorded, but it cannot be fully validated until there is another who corroborates what the first witness has said. These two witnesses tell us that what is said will be immediately and absolutely and eternally corroborated. They will be established as a faithful witness as they prophesy for a period of time which will last three and a half years. Don't miss that. Three and a half years. I want to talk to you and take a note for just a moment about designations of time and what they represent in Revelation. It's important for us to understand it's the crux of today's message. They give us a designation of time that is described in this way, 42 months, 1,260 days, and a time, time, and half a time. Those are all references to the same amount of time. Time, time, and half a time, 3.5 or three and a half, if you will. This is a conventional period for apocalyptic literature, and it explains that these various designations point out that the periods of final witness, the period of divine protection, and the period of even antagonism from the wicked and the pagan are all simultaneous with one another. That's what it's teaching us in this. And it symbolizes a limited period of time in which evil is allowed to triumph over God's people. We'll see that in just a moment. Here the two witnesses are still testifying. And they are identified as two olive trees and two lampstands. What does that represent? Well, the lampstand we saw at the beginning in chapter 2 represents what? There were seven of them around and, and each one of them represented one of the seven churches to whom the letters were written at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The lampstand is the church that is witnessing in the world. Church, all Christians who are remaining on the earth who are witnessing in the world. And what does the olive tree next to them provide? An endless source of oil for their witness. If you grew up in church, you probably know this song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Have you learned this? How many of you learned this? You don't have to raise your hand. You can. It's okay. No problem. You know, hide it under a bush. Oh, no, I'm going to let it shine, right? Won't let Satan it out. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? What is it telling us? Two witnesses. Fire comes out of their mouth for their foes. They are two lampstands, and they have an eternal source of oil to keep that lamp burning until God says no more. That's what the word is telling us here. There will be nothing that impedes the witness of the church in this time. They will be acute. They will be exact. They will be effective, and they will be until God says no more. That's what we must understand. That is the church and the spirit empowering the church for witness. He is equipping his church with all that is needed to serve his purpose as a faithful witness in the world. Verse 7 through 14, when the ministry of two witnesses is fulfilled, at that moment, they are no longer protected from harm. And the beast rises from the bottomless pit, 
and kills them. This is the first time we meet a figure who represents the major antagonist of the church in Revelation, the Antichrist. And though detailed presentations will not come until later, here we immediately see with pointedness, he comes out of the abyss, he kills the two witnesses. And here John only reveals this or that they are killed by the beast with no further detail. It tells us their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city for three and a half days. Of course, there is debate. Is this Rome? Is this Jerusalem? Which city is this? And it's the one where the people of the world, will, or excuse me, their bodies being in the street of the great city will be one at which people of the world who are left re, uh, gaze at and rejoice over them. And so we're seeing a representation of the suffering of the church physically by their persecutors. Their persecutors. One scholar tells us this. Ironically, this is the only mention of rejoicing in the book of Revelation. And it is in reference to sinners who are rejoicing and happy because those who declared God's judgment are dead. Remember over the last two weeks when the acceleration of judgment was coming and people's hearts just got harder and harder. The display of God's power and you go, man, nobody could see that and not believe. And yet, hardness to God at every turn. And where does that hardness to God lead? But ultimately, even to rejoicing over what appears to be the ultimate defeat of goodness in God. It's an emotional response that graphically reflects the finality of their rejection of God and his witness in the world. I also want you to note something here, though. And it is the three and a half days that they lie dead in the streets and are rejoiced over. It corresponds to the 1,260 days of their prophetic activity, which if you understand, that's three and a half years. Three and a half years of effective witnessing, three and a half days of being rejoiced over in their death. The comparison tells us this, the time of suffering will be very brief, very brief. After three and a half days, the Bible says a breath of life from God enters them and they stand up and great fear falls on all who see them. There is a loud voice from heaven that says, come up here, and they go up to heaven in the cloud and their enemies stand watching them. At this moment, there's a great earthquake, and one-tenth of the city is killed. 7,000 people, it records. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The reference there is not one that we should infer of as revival that broke out on earth, but rather one of you can't deny what you just saw. You've got to at least acknowledge some nebulous force up there to which they just went when called. You so friends, here we are learning that the period of suffering under God's judgment for the wicked corresponds to the time of their reign, but it does not compare. It does not compare 
This is what's so important, friends, as we build a theology of of end times, as we build a theology of understanding what all will transpire. Will there be suffering for the Christian? Yes, I do believe Revelation clearly teaches that. Will it in any way compare? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 1,260 days of prophesying versus 3.5 days of suffering the rule and the reign and the power of God have nothing that compare to it. And that's what he is telling us. And with that, the second woe passes. And the third is soon to come, verse 14 tells us. And we see the third reality of final judgment is this. Persecution will be real during the final witness. But God protects those who are his. And he empowers for faithful witness while he truncates Satan's pleasure. Cuts him off at the knees. No more, he says. No more. And this is the God whom we worship. This is why Paul declares that knowing Christ is of greater worth than anything in this life and everything in this life. It surpasses all things of this life. I count all things as loss for the sake of the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. Why? Because it's incomparable. And God's power working through our faithful witnesses so much greater to accomplish his purpose that any suffering for his name is inconsiderable in comparison. Finally, we reach the end of our passage for today. It's actually the midpoint of Revelation But I am inclined to agree it is the culmination and the high point of the message of Revelation. Here we get a look to the end. I want to read verse 15 through 19 for us. It says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. The seventh angel blasts his trumpet, and it is a blast of victory, friends, not retreat. It is a blast to announce that the one who is, who was, and forevermore shall be has taken his throne. And here we see the high point of the whole book of Revelation. You say, how in the world can we get to the end right in the middle? Well, so much of scriptural text is written in a chiasm that the literary form is that it peaks and then everything that carries back mirrors and parallels what has been made known up to that point to fulfill, to explain, to understand, and to fulfill what has been revealed even in the culmination. 
Loud voices in heaven declare the kingdom of God is one. And the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray, that the kingdom that is in heaven make it that way on earth becomes the way it is on earth. The way he teaches us to pray becomes the reality that he has fought and won for us. And the end has come and the eternal rule of King Jesus begins. This is the moment when the trumpet is blown, when voices are raised, when rebellion against the world's rightful Lord comes to an absolute end and will be no more. The true king is enthroned and his reign will never end. There's a song of great thanksgiving from the elders that recount the mighty power of the Lord Jesus and how it is that he will reign. And then it tells us, friends, don't miss the imagery of verse 19. That the Holy of Holies is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is revealed to all. Everyone can see it. You, you realize that this has never before been true. That only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go into where the habitation of God was and only the high priest could do that once a year because no one else was worthy and even the high priest, if he didn't do everything right, wouldn't come out. But now the altar of God is thrown open for all. This is the way it ends. Not closed, open, inviting, receiving, and bringing home those who he marked off to join those who had gone before. God has given us a picture of the end. He is worthy because he wins. The fourth reality of the final judgment is this. Jesus is the king who is worthy of our faithful witness because he has conquered and he rewards his saints because he is faithful and true. Jesus stands sovereign over all creation to judge, but God guards his people for a faithful witness to all nations. So, Pastor, what's our right response to this? Surely, it seems on many days we are living in the last days. And then, in so many ways, maybe not ultimately, finally yet. What is our response to this? Our response is one of security in our walk with Christ now because of what we understand will be then. And our response is to take strength for our witness for Christ now because we've seen the end and we know he wins. Friends, we must never study these chapters and allow fear to scare us nor silence us. Listen to me. We take comfort in the promise of God. We draw courage from the revelation of God. And we advance with the testimony of God. Knowing that the words of Jesus Christ, that the gates of hell would not stand against the testimony of his people. And that is what we live in now because we know what shall be then. We do not live now 
in fear that causes us to subvert. But we say he is worthy now. Whatever suffering may come will not compare to the glory that will be revealed. So come what may, we follow Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We've set our eyes on him, and it is to him we shall be taken. And if he comes in our day, while we remain in the inner court and get measured up, the question is, will you be his? Will you be his? A faithful testimony to Jesus Christ, friends, brings comfort in the face of what Satan wants to threaten you with, but courage to walk into it knowing that the Spirit of God will empower the people of God for a faithful witness to Jesus Christ at all times.